Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about a, uh, a subject that uh, I, I don't hear discussed that often. Um, sometimes people uh, allude to it. They, like, hit on it, but, but I haven't necessarily heard uh, a whole talk just directly uh, discussing the topic itself, which is the nature of doubt. I want to talk about doubt. And... Um, I, I think it's important because, you know, I think that most people, they look around, they, they, they see the, the, the expansiveness of the world, and they understand intuitively, whether they have intellectual blocks, whatever it is, but deep down, they understand that, 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 that there is a God in the world, there, there's, a, there's a God who created the world, you know, because where did the world come from? Where did I come from? Where did you come from? How can it be that everything runs? So, I mean, you know, we have problems in our lives and we, we wish things ran smoother, but relatively speaking, things seem to run, you know, you know, the, the, the planets don't crash into each other. You know, there are certain elements, if you combine them, that you have explosions. If you can think back to your high school science lab, you put these two things together, you get an explosion. And yet, and there are lots of those combinations which, causes explosion, which cause explosions, and yet God puts them in rocks and separates them. So, you know, there's a lot of order to the world, even if we don't necessarily experience it in our lives. The point is, is that our, our kishkas, our insides, intuitively tell us that there's a God. So, if that's the case then, why do we experience doubt? And why is that normal? Because a lot of us experience doubt, even as at the same time we experience faith. We know that there's a God, and yet we have questions in our mind. And then a lot of people think that, you know something? There must be something wrong with me. If I have questions in my mind, that means that there's something wrong with me. That means that I don't really believe. Because if I believed, how could I have questions? So what I'm trying to do in this talk today is to really talk on sort of a cosmic level and a, a macro level, if you will, and talk about how doubt is a creation in, in the world. That God made doubt. And that doubt is an intrinsic part of the world. And that there's nothing unnormal about doubt, and that one can have doubt even in the presence of belief, and that it doesn't wipe out the good of the belief, that it's normal. It's normal to doubt. And I want to go through a bunch of different sources and show how it's just part of the world. You know, sometimes you've got the wrong piece of shoes, you get a callus on your toe. You, you don't like change your life upside down because you got a callus on your toe. It's like part of the normal order of things. Doubt is part of the normal order of things. It was built into creation. So now, with that as an introduction, I want to <clears throat> get into it a little bit more. You know, there are two, two examples that I'd like to touch on that I think show very clearly what we're talking about. How God participates in this, actively. <clears throat> in other words, understand that it's not when I have a doubt, I have a question against God and I'm slapping God in the, in the face, so to speak, by asking this question. God himself is participating in the creation of doubt. So God is a partner in this aspect of the world. 
So let me give you two. We'll begin with these two examples. One of the earliest and greatest of sciences, one of the earliest advances in human civilization in terms of understanding the universe was in the field of astronomy. And to this day, a lot of the calculations that were made by the sages of the Talmud stand up today as incredibly, almost impossibly accurate, given the level of tools that they had back then. So the ancients were very, very great when it came to astronomy. And one of the things, sort of like one of our first advances in astronomy, was looking at the nature of the world, at the sky, like the sky was... To, to put it in a very sort of strange way, the sky was like the first movie theater or television set. You know, at night, you'd see the stars, and you could see all the stars, because it was before pollution and light pollution and all the rest, and you could see subtle nuances in the way the screen changed, so to speak. So they, they wrote down all these exact measurements, and um, as we said, they were very accurate. But the point is, is that one of the most obvious things, you didn't have to be a great astronomer back then or even today, one of the most obvious things that everyone saw was that the sun seemed to revolve around the earth. Right? Because we stood still, the earth stood still, and you'd see the sun would rise and the sun would set. And it would seem, it seemed until very recently, that the sun was making a cycle around the earth. As we know today, that's not, that's not the case. The earth revolves around the sun. Everyone knows that. So, think about this for a moment. Isn't it interesting that God put in front of our faces, so that we could see with our own eyes every single day, what looks like the sun revolving around the earth when that's not the case? Anyone who says that they can is incorrect. So this is to teach us something very, very deep. You see, God put right in front of our face, constructed the world in such a way where we would see something with our own eyes that seems to be unmistakable, the sun revolving around the earth, and yet it's not the case. So God is teaching us something very, very deep in this way. He's showing us that what we see with our eyes is not always the truth. That there's a deeper sense to reality. And we have to tap into those sources which lead us down the proper path toward what that truth actually is. But that if we look with our eyes alone, we're going to be misled. I'll give you... Let's go a little bit deeper. There's a period of time in the Torah we call it Shkia, or Ben which in itself is a, a term that I'd like to explain. It means between the suns, which is very, very deep. But anyway, Ben Ashmashos, or Shkia, has an English word. It's called twilight. It's that time after the sun sets, but it's not nighttime yet. Okay, so the... And it's about, it's about an 18-minute period, or maybe it's even longer than that. So, think about this for a moment. When is the end of a day... Well, you'd say, well, wait a second. The day ends when the sun sets. That makes sense. So the sun sets, but after the sun sets, can you still read a book outside? You can. So there's still light outside. So is it day or is it night? So maybe you say to me, well, wait a second. 
No, no, no. Nighttime really starts when it's completely dark outside and there's, say, three stars in the sky. That's when night starts. Well, doesn't night start when the sun sets? That's the end of the day, when the sun sets. So there's this period of time after the sun is set, but before there's stars in the sky. We call it twilight. But on a halachic level, it's this period of not day, not night. It's a period, I heard in the name of Rob Soloveitchik, called doubt. It's a period where doubt has been created. It's a gray area. In other words, it's not that we're arguing there's a right answer. It's either day or it's night. And if we were a little bit smarter, we'd be able to figure it out. It's, it's day? No, no, no. It's night. It's not it. Listen to it again. There is a definition to this category. It's a category called not day and not night. It's this period of not knowing, of doubt. Again, just like God built into the world the illusion that the sun revolves around the earth, he also built into every single day, into the time-space coordinates, into the, the fabric of the day itself, this notion of not knowing what the thing is. We also have this in halacha. We have different categories of the mitzvahs. The most fascinating category of the mitzvahs are what we call the chukim, a chok, something from this category, is something that we're told we can't know. So it's an astounding thing, because if you look at what the Torah is, you know, I always like to give people a sense of, of, what the, of how big the Talmud is. And my favorite example is, if you learn a page a day of the Talmud, it takes you seven years to get through the Talmud. That's, how, that's massive, okay? And it's basically a book that's filled with questions. You know, anyone who says that we're not allowed... Let me tell you something. If you're exploring a topic with someone, especially a metaphysical topic or a topic about religion, and they tell you, don't ask questions, that means that that faith has something to be afraid of. Any faith that encourages questions, that, that's what you want. And the Talmud is the greatest repository of questions in the universe. All it is is questions. And there are answers too, of course. But if something is really true, it only grows stronger by having questions asked against it. So we have this idea, so, so this is how much we value knowledge. But we have this category of the mitzvahs called chukim, where God tells us outright, there's so much that you can know. There's so much that Hashem wants to share with us. And then he says to us, also, because it's emes, it's truth, God says, you know something? There's a certain amount, I'm telling you right now. You're a finite creation. God is an infinite creation. The mind can hold only so much. It can't hold any more. And you know what? Certain things are simply beyond us. Because we function in one dimension. But the world is composed of many, many, many dimensions. The example that I always like to give, I heard from Reb Shlomo, is the following. It's just so simple and perfect. A person looks through a keyhole, and he sees through the keyhole. Someone is about to stab someone else in the stomach. A murder is about to take place. And what's really going on behind the door? It's an operating room. 
And it's a doctor who's saving the patient's life. What we thought was going on, it's the opposite of really what's going on. So God gives us little pieces of information. Little pieces of information. And we have to understand that there's more that we can't know. But he gives us three fundamental guidelines to getting through life. Number one, God is good. Number two, every single thing in the world comes from God. And number three, God is intimately involved in our lives. It's not just that he's sending out orders to angels and doesn't know what's going on with us. He's directing everything, but he doesn't care about us. Cares, 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 cares. Never stops care. Okay. So now, listen to this. When God created the world, the Torah says, it's here in, um, in Breshis, if you want to look it up. It's in uh, chapter 1, verse 16. It's, uh, it says that uh, God made two great luminaries. Two great luminaries. And so the sages look into this phrase, two great luminaries, and they derive something absolutely phenomenal. And let me just pause because I'm answering a question that I asked earlier now, just so you know we're on track to answering an earlier question. This idea of doubt, remember, we're, we're discussing doubt today. And this idea that there's doubt has been structurally implemented into every single day. That's this notion of twilight. It's not day and it's not night. And it's called in Torah, Benashmashos which means between the suns. Very interesting idea, between the suns. So now I would like to give my own personal explanation of what that means, and that will lead us into a deeper thought about the present imperfection of the world and the nature of exile. So it says in the Torah, God made two great luminaries. The greater luminary to dominate the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night and the stars. Now you, you've got an amazing, you've got a whole history of the world, you've got a whole soap opera plot that just took place in that one Pusuk. Listen to it again. God made two great luminaries. That means that they're equal. The sages say that when God created the sun and the moon, He made them the right size, the same size. They were the same size. Now listen to how the Pasuk continues. The greater luminary to dominate the, the day and the lesser luminary to dominate the night and the stars. Well, wait a second. In the beginning of the Pasuk, they were the same size. What happened? All of a sudden, you have the greater and the lesser. And we know that the sun is radically larger than the moon. So you have a whole story over here contained in this Pasuk. So what happened? It's not really our topic, it's an aside, but as long as we brought it up, let's just bring it out. The moon, the moon said to God, because there are two great luminaries the same size in the, in the, in the sky, the moon says to God, is it, is it, is it proper that two heads should, should share the same crown? Right? Because you have one sky, and yet you have two, two equal rulers. So God says, you know, you're right. It's not proper that two heads should share the same crown. So you know what? Make yourself small. 
So I'm not sure that's the, the response the moon was looking for. <laughs> but we're told that, that's, that that is how the moon became smaller. Now, this is a very rich, a very rich topic. And it connects to the whole nature of free choice. Because it says in the Gemara, if you look at the, the Shemona Esrei that we daven in the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh, and the Gemara comments on this, it says, God says, bring for me a sin offering. So the Gemara asks a very good question. Wait a second. God is asking that you bring a sin offering for him? What, what, did, what did God do? What, what did God do wrong that he needs us to bring a sin offering on his behalf? So you know what the answer that's given is? Because he decreased the light of the moon. Okay, so now we're talking in very advanced code right now. What does that mean? He decreased the light of the moon, so therefore we have to bring an atonement for God. So the way it was explained to me is the following. God decreased the amount of His revealed light in the world. That means that it now became possible for human beings to do the wrong thing. Because we couldn't see God that clearly. You see, God is saying to us something very powerful and something very beautiful. God is saying, you know what? If you could see me, if you really knew who I was, if you understood that you were standing before me at all times, you would never ever do anything wrong. The fact that I concealed my presence from you, even though God can be found, but the fact that God says, because I decreased the light of the moon, meaning to say, because you don't always know that you're standing before me, because I'm concealed in this world, that means on some level, I need an atonement also, says God. Bring a sin offering on my behalf also. Because the only reason why you're doing something wrong on one level, and I have to emphasize right now that we're responsible for all of our choices, and we have to take responsibility for everything that we do. Nonetheless, on some very deep level, God is saying to us, if you really saw me, you'd never do anything wrong. So now we see that God decreased His light in the world on some level. Again, we've got this, this new idea of doubt, the idea of doubt being part of the world itself. Now why would God do such a thing? And the answer is because he wants to give us free choice. You see, you have to understand something. The angels who are in heaven, who don't have a body, who don't have any senses that separate them from perceiving God, even though they themselves ask, where is the place of his glory? So even the angels don't see God completely, but nonetheless they see God far, far, far greater than us. So the angels, the angels don't do anything wrong. But you know what? From God's point of view, it's no big deal. Because why should they do anything wrong? They see who God is. They don't have a, a Yetzirah, an evil inclination to do anything wrong. But us, what we're able to do, the fact that we can choose to do good, this is the highest. This is absolutely the highest. You know... One of the great rabbis, I think it was the Chofetz Chaim, said 
I always like this, that when a person begins to speak Lashon Hara, begins to say something uh, destructive with their words, and then stops themselves before they say it, that the angels in heaven gasp with envy. That we have the ability to start down the wrong path and to control ourselves and understand that there is a God and then to do the right thing. This blows the angels' minds like from here to eternity. Now again, this idea of hiddenness, this idea of hiddenness in exile and how we understand that this is all doubt being structurally implemented into the world. And again, the point that I'm making, I want to return to it so that you're, you're with me, is to understand that doubt is a part of the world. And that a person can believe, and a person can do the right thing, and a person can reach higher stages of holiness, and still coexist with doubt. I heard a beautiful example in the name of Rabbi Green, because there are some people who get fixated on their own doubt. And they think, you know something? If I have a doubt, all I have to do now, all my mind and all my attention is now going into servicing my doubt. And that's all I can do right now. Because if I have a doubt, that means there must be something wrong with my faith. And therefore I can't believe, because if I did believe, I wouldn't have a doubt. So what I'm coming, this entire talk is coming to tell you that that's not the case. That a person can believe and a person can be sincere and a person can attach themselves to God and to Torah and to mitzvahs and still have a part of them which, which asks a question. And that this is normal because this is part of the world. Doubt has been sown into the world. And I'm going to continue to give you examples of how this is so. We'll go deeper. But listen to this example. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful example. A man is married to a woman. This is obviously a parallel between us and God. A man is married to a woman. And he knows, right now, he doesn't know where his wife is. But he knows his wife. Yeah, there's, there's a pos- What is she doing right this moment? I don't know. Maybe, maybe she's outside the house. Maybe she's at work. Maybe she's at home. Maybe she's preparing something for the kids. Maybe she's sleeping. Is it possible that she's with another man or something like that? It's possible. But is that who your wife is? That's not who your wife is. Is anything possible? Anything is possible. But is that what's going on right now? That's not what's going on right now. Because you know your wife. And your wife is someone who you can trust. So it is with us and God. Is it possible that he's not there? Well, no, it's not even possible that he's not there. (laughs) Because if he's not there, we're not there. You see, the Gomorrah compares God and the soul and talks about a number of different commonalities between the soul and God. Just like you can't see the soul, you can't see God. There's a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of similarities. But there's one big difference between the soul and God. Now listen to this very carefully. At the end of 120, the soul leaves a person's body, but the body remains. 
Imagine a person in a hospital. There's the corpse, right? We bury the corpse. We should only know from simchas, but there's the corpse, but the soul goes away. If God were to go away, the world would not exist. It would not be like there would be a world without a God. The world itself would cease to exist entirely. Imagine yourself in a room with no windows and the door is shut and someone just turns off the light. The universe itself would just flick off. It would disappear entirely. So, how do we know that God is here? Because we're here. You know, it's a whole different point, but I just want to say it right now. Sometimes people look for archaeological evidence of us leaving Egypt. Right? They want to find the chariots on the bottom of the Red Sea. Right? You want the best archaeological evidence? Look in the mirror. (laughs) You're a living, walking piece of archaeological evidence of leaving Egypt. You yourself. (laughs) You can't get better than that. (laughs) Living, breathing testimony. Okay. So again, we still haven't answered this question, but I want to keep it in your minds. Why are we correlating this idea of doubt and shkia, this time where it's not day and it's not night? And why would this be called benashmashos, between the suns? So if you're thinking, I've already given you a couple of clues, but we have to answer a couple more things before we turn back to that. So the word, the word for world in Hebrew is olam. And it's um, ayin vav lamed mem, olam. Now the root of that word is ayin lamed mem, olam. I guess it's the same, same word. The root of the word world, believe it or not, is the same in Hebrew as the word for hidden. Which is an amazing, amazing thing. The word hidden and the word world in Hebrew are the same. Because God is hidden in this world. I heard Rabbi Sitran say one time, he heard this mystical teaching from his Rebbe, that God created this infinite series of worlds, this so many worlds, right? And that ours is the lowest. So he asked his Rebbe, well, wait a second. If God created so many different worlds, then how do we know there's not a world even lower than ours? And the Rebbe's response has always stayed with me because it's magnificent and it gives you an idea of where we are. You have to know where we are in order to understand who you are. He said that this is the most God can be concealed while still being able to be found if you look for him. I'll say that again. Awesome thought. This world is the most God can be concealed where if you look for Him, you can still find Him. If He was any more concealed than this, if you look for Him, you wouldn't find Him. But if you look for Him, even in this world, you will absolutely find Him 100%. 100%. If you really look. Now, you know something? Imagine I like Chinese food. Now imagine 
I've gone to 15 different Chinese food restaurants, and they're all terrible. Okay? So now, imagine I say, there's no such thing as good-tasting Chinese food. All right? Now you say, well, wait a second. Have you eaten at this restaurant? And I say, no. And you say, you know what? The Chinese food there is really good. And you know what? I go to that restaurant. Turns out the Chinese food there is really good. Turns out there is good tasting Chinese food in the world. By the way, on a personal note, I don't think I've ever had bad tasting Chinese food. (laughs) What's the point? The point is a lot of people search and they say they haven't found truth. And they may have actually looked reasonably hard. It's possible. Most people haven't looked that hard. Most people say they have looked hard. Really haven't looked that hard, by the way. But let's say they've looked. Just because people have looked and they haven't found doesn't mean it doesn't exist. People say, well, there is no one truth. There's like lots of different truths. But you know what? We say there is a truth. We say Torah Temet. The Torah of truth. We're very uh, unashamed to say that the Torah is true. So those people, and it's most of humanity, who have experienced lack of truth, a person can go through their entire life experiencing lack of truth. But that doesn't mean that truth doesn't exist. But it's very concealed in this world. Now I want to do... A Pasuk. And after this, God willing, we'll get back and I'll give an answer of explaining why doubt is called between the suns. We have the embodiment of doubt in this world. You know, there's a, this idea of doubt. It exists on, in time. It exists in space. And it exists also on a, on a human level. There's a famous gematria, Amalek. Amalek is the sworn enemy of God and the Jewish people. Amalek tries to say there's no God in this world. So the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word Amalek, is the same as the word suffake, which means doubt. Now listen to this. A famous Pasuk. I'll read it in Hebrew and English, I guess. This is in uh, Parshas B'Shalach. Uh, Shmos, Exodus, chapter 17, uh, verse 16. So it says, V'yomer ki yad al kes ya milchama ladonai ba'malek midor v'dor. So, for the hand is on the throne of God, Hashem maintains a war against Amalek from generation to generation. So this energy of Amalek, this energy of the denial of God is in this world until God gets rid of Amalek, until God brings Mashiach. Now look at this amazing thing. It really should say that the hand is on the throne of God. It should say, Kisei Hashem. That's how you would say it. Kisei is a throne. Hashem, Yudke Vavke. But it doesn't say that. It's missing a bunch of letters. It says, Case Ya. The Aleph from Kisei is missing, and the Vav and the He from Hashem's name is also missing. 
So Rashi says something really amazing. He says, as long as Amalek is in the world, the throne of God in this world is incomplete. As long as you have this embodiment of doubt, as long as you have doubt built into the world, the full revelation of godliness will not be able to be perceived. We're perceiving a tiny fraction of the godliness that's in this world. A tiny fraction. You know, it says, it's a famous medical thing, that we're only using something like 5% of our brains or 10% of our brains, something like this. I often think that when it says, when the Pusik says that Hashem is going to circumcise our hearts, when He's going to take that fatty level, that fatty layer off of our hearts, and we're able to perceive that that's what the scientists are talking about. Can you imagine what it's going to mean when we use 100% of our brains? Our full level of perception? I mean, with only 5% of our brains, we've already figured out how to destroy the world hundreds of times over. Can you imagine what it's going to mean when we have 100% of our brains of perception? I mean, I mean, paradise doesn't even begin to explain the state of bliss that the world is going to bask in. They call it basking in the rays of the Shekhinah that we'll have crowns on our heads and we'll just be awesome, 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 awesome. Okay. So now listen to this. Let's get back to why the word doubt, why this time of doubt is called between the suns. Because you know something? The moon is not going to remain small forever. God is going to restore the moon and bring it back to the level of the sun. But until then... Until then, we're between the suns, so to speak. We're between, we're between where the moon used to be and where the moon is going to be. And as long as that takes place, there's going to be doubt in the world. But when Amalek is, is, is knocked out, when we have a base of Migdash, when the Jews return back to the land... When Mashiach arrives, when our hearts become circumcised, the true reality is going to be revealed. This Parsha talks about another element of doubt that comes into the world in the form of the false prophet. This in itself is very amazing. There are two main opinions about who the false prophet is. According to Rabbi Akiva, the false prophet is someone who is a legitimate prophet who's gone off and become corrupt and now is telling you to worship other gods and do the wrong thing or stop doing the right thing. So it's a real prophet, an authentic prophet. He's gone the wrong way with his life. Okay, now listen to a much more radical understanding. This is Rashi on the Chumash. Rashi says, you know what? You know who the false prophet is? It's someone who's a complete fake. And God actually will give that person the ability to make a genuine miracle. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine? Someone who's not for real at all, God will empower to actually do an authentic miracle. Why? Because God tells you. In the Pasuk itself, it says, because I'm testing you. I want to see if you really love me with all of your heart and with all of your soul. When I was growing up, and this may just be me, I don't know if you can identify with this, I, I thought the notion that God is testing us wasn't such a Jewish concept. You know, it doesn't sound so Jewish to me. And yet, as I learn the Chumash, I see, here it says, God says, I'm testing you with the manna. And there he says, I'm testing you with this, and I'm testing you with that. God tests us. He really does. He really does. And that's okay. You know what? If that's one of the conditions of being in this world, and I get to give God nachas by being tested? Now believe me, I'm not asking for tests, because we have a rule. Which is that if God tests you, He gives you the ability to pass the test. Except if you ask for the test. So, I'm not asking for any tests. All I'm saying is that this is a beautiful world. Now I want to give you a third category, and we're going to start to wrap this up. A false prophet. And this is, I think, something that when I saw this, like my, my eyes jumped out of my head. I couldn't believe it. And you know, this whole class, I try to make things as practical as possible. So this is, this is super practical. But you have to pay attention. You have to just follow this. I don't think it's complicated, but you just have to listen a little bit carefully right now. In Parsha Shoftim, we get another category of false prophets. And, and here it is. God says a prophecy, and another prophet overhears it. And the other prophet, who God didn't say the prophecy to, goes out and says, in the name of God, do such a thing, or in the name of God, don't do such a thing. And, what, and he says it over accurately. He says over the prophecy that God really told the prophet. But he didn't tell that prophet to say it. He told another prophet to say it. That prophet is called a false prophet and gets the death penalty. Isn't that interesting? The word itself that he said in God's name was the word that God himself said. But he didn't tell that particular prophet to say it. He said it to another prophet. So, let's get very personal now. God is telling each one of us something. You know? You know, a lot of people are afraid of the Torah and they're afraid of the mitzvahs. Because they think there's 613 commandments. Actually, of those, we only have really a couple of hundred right now without the base of Migdash and without a Sanhedrin and without a king and all the rest. We don't have nearly that many right now. And even when, a, when we do have 613 commandments, no one person can do all 613. Of course, some are for women and some are for men and some are for, for people who are farmers and some are for kings. So even if we have the optimal circumstances, no individual can ever do all 613 commandments. You need a community existing with unity in order to perform the whole Torah. But nonetheless, 
Nonetheless, people are afraid of the Torah. They're afraid that if they keep the Torah, they're going to disappear. That's what they think. I will, I will cease to exist. And the example that I heard that I think is such a good example, you know, we have a whole volume of, of, of Talmud, Mesech Sukkah, which is a very detailed instructions, very detailed, how do you build a Sukkah? And yet, so you would think it's so detailed, every Sukkah should look the same. Right? Because the halachas are so particular. And yet, what's the reality? Anyone who's walked from sukkah to sukkah knows that every single person has a different sukkah. <coughs> and they're all kosher. And they all look different. So this shows you that a person can operate within the Torah and still express their own uniqueness in a beautiful way. And this is the point that I want to make about the, this last category of a false prophet. That God is whispering something to each and every single one of us about the unique combinations of beauty and talent that He put into us. And it's not up, it's not up to us to say, you know what, I want His job and I want her talents and I want everything else like that. The person has to look into themselves and to say over the message that God gave to them. And if you're copying someone else, you're barking up the wrong tree. Like I like to say all the time, people think that there's a competition going on in this world. And there is a competition going on in the world. It's not a joke. But it's not between you and your neighbor or your friend. It's between you and yourself. It's between you and the, God, and the job that God gave you to do. And so, I want to say one last thing on this. Which is, you know, when we say Shema, and we talk about the oneness of God, and how God is everywhere and in everything, We close our eyes. We meditate on how God saturates all of existence. But you know what? There's certain people and there's certain places where that concealment becomes broken. There's certain people, there's certain places, there's certain things where that moment becomes a window to seeing God. Because like we said, God is concealed in this world, but He's not completely concealed in this world. Which means there are certain windows to seeing Him in this world. Listen to this. Sarah, our Holy Mother Sarah, right, the first Jewish woman, was so beautiful. She was beautiful. And she had another name besides Sarah, which was Yizcha. And why did they call her that? Because that's from a word meaning to gaze. Like people would see Sarah and they'd be like, whoa. They would gaze at her. But Yizcha connects to another word. 
in Torah, which is schach. It has the same root. Schach is that covering that we put over a sukkah. So now this is going to give us right now the Jewish concept of what beauty is, what real beauty is. What's the law of schach? It covers the sukkah, but you have to be able to see through it and you have to be able to see the stars through it. You gaze through it and you see the heavens. So in other words, what's real Jewish beauty? Because Sarah has the same yiska, which is the same idea of peering through and seeing the beauty. The real idea of Jewish beauty is that someone should look at you and perceive an aspect of the beauty of God. Or should see one of your actions and feel as though God Himself is helping that person at that moment. For a person to become invisible, for a person to become a window that others should be able to perceive God through. This is beauty. This is beauty. So we have doubt in this world. And it's been built into this world and it was on purpose. But it doesn't undermine faith. And the two can coexist with each other. And of course, ideally, a person will evolve and evolve and they won't believe anymore. They'll know. That's the highest. To transform belief into knowing. But until we get to that place, and while we're on the road to that place, It's okay if there's doubt, because there's doubt in the world. But what's our challenge? Our challenge is to be a window for other people. That they can interact with us, that they can see our actions. As a community, as a nation, as individuals. And they can perceive God in this world. Have a good week. Thank you.